Thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So uh, I hope uh, to try and convey to you the importance of law as a discipline in preventing non-communicable diseases, firstly, and secondly, how law can be used to better prevent non-communicable diseases. And uh, this work uh, stems from um, the work in particular we've done to uh, develop uh, legal capacity courses, in particular with the World Health Organization, to try and um, help states understand not only what the potential of law is in uh, developing uh, effective uh, childhood obesity strategy, but also how they can best use uh, the law. And the first course we're we are running with the World Health Organization will, uh, will be run on the 17th of June, uh, for a week from the 17th of June onwards. And the idea is to train a certain number of states with various uh, government officials to hear uh, much more than uh, what I could say in, uh, in 40 minutes. But uh, I hope to give you a flavor of why law is becoming this uh, um, as uh, a growing um, appeal, if you like, uh, in this area of uh, obesity prevention and control. Uh, the first statement in high-level policy documents that you see uh, to law uh, was made in the Montevideo Conference uh, Roadmap. This conference was the, the event that preceded the third UN high-level meeting on the prevention and control of NCDs. And in this quote, there are really two elements that um, I will come back to during this talk that must be borne in mind. First, law is an opportunity to regulate the food industry. But you also need to understand the legal challenges that you may face as a government if you decide to regulate robustly the food industry, because they have developed very creative legal strategies to oppose uh, regulation by uh, competent national and supranational authorities, such as the European Union. And I'm going to uh, reflect a bit on these ideas. So I'm talking first about the why is the law becoming more and more uh, discussed in uh, obesity prevention and control circles, and how can we best use the law? So why? Uh, first, we accept increasingly the idea that obesity and non-communicable diseases more generally are not exclusively a question of personal responsibility. And from the moment you accept that the problems of obesity and non-communicable diseases are extremely complex and urgent, then you start thinking about what society can do to improve the food environment in which our food choices are made. And we know that's just one example of some mapping of the food system. We know that the law can intervene at various, um, in, in various ways. So if you think about the NCD uh, Global Action Plan for 2013-2020, we have a commitment of states in the world to achieve nine voluntary targets. These targets are not legally binding. They don't oblige the states. But nonetheless, there are commitments that states have made. And many of these commitments could potentially be, um, be reached 
through the use of law, among other instruments. So uh, I'll, I'll, of course, give you some examples in a minute. But you can see that there is this increasing recognition in policy uh, documents that government can use their regulatory power to improve the food environment in various ways. But what we've argued, uh, my colleagues and I, is that not only they can, but they should. This is not to say that we consider that the law is a panacea. Uh, the law has to work hand in hand with other strategies, uh, education, public health campaigns, etc., etc. But we, we argue that the law is indeed a key instrument in the prevention of obesity if you're really serious about uh, changing the food uh, environment. And these are some examples of possible regulatory interventions. Uh, they are certainly not uh, an exhaustive list, but nonetheless they give you an idea of how much could be done through, uh, through legislation. So consumer information, consumer education, uh, via school curricula, uh, public procurement rules to ensure that uh, meals in, uh, at school are healthier, marketing restrictions both for infant food, the implementation of a code of marketing of breast milk substitutes, but also um, the regulation of marketing uh, to children, use of economic instruments, so the sugar uh, industry levy uh, as a form of taxation, but also the subsidies of healthier uh, food product reformulation with the aims to eliminate trans fat or reduce them to very low levels in food or the reformulation programs the, uh, the UK has been so proud about of salt and sugar uh, reduction. You can limit product, uh, product size, you can um, eradicate or reduce the um, multi-buy offers um, the Bogovs buy one, get one free offers. Uh, there are uh, some talks about this in the UK at the moment. You could think about licensing requirements. You can think about the imposition of age limits, so sale of energy drinks uh, being prohibited to children, another item which is part of the UK Childhood Obesity Plan. I, the list continues. You could also envisage some uh, measures to promote physical activity, so town planning legislation. You can also uh, reflect on prohibitions uh, of having fast food restaurants within a certain distance of schools, etc., etc. So quite a lot potentially, but let's not forget that there are good laws and bad laws. And a bad law is not particularly helpful. You have to make sure that your law is evidence-based and that your law will uh, help you achieve the objective that you have defined. Now, why is law potentially a very good um, form of intervention when addressing obesity? First, it is of general application and it is binding. So if you do not comply with the law, the chances are that there will be some enforcement mecha mechanisms and that there will be some sanctions. This is not the case for self-regulatory measures very often, where first of all, uh, the food industry would make some voluntary commitments. So by definition, these commitments are not obliging them. And if they do not comply with the commitments that they've made, then it's very unlikely that there are significant sanctions, fines that will have a deterrent effect. 
if you look at the general data protection regulation and how it potentially regulates the um, uh, practices, marketing practices of the advertising technology platforms such as Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon and so on, uh, they can be fined if they infringe the provisions of the GDPR up to 4% of their global turnover. This is a deterrent effect because 4% of Google turnover is in the million of uh, pounds. So that's, that's a very hefty uh, fine that acts indeed as a deterrent. Um, and uh, law, laws are supposed to be um, adopted in the public interest, which is not necessarily the case um, of uh, self-regulatory uh, self uh, measures, uh, pledges, commitments that are voluntarily taken by um, private operators, food industries, advertising industries, or others. But there are also some limits that we need to be aware of when we think about the law. Because the law, yes, the industry will tell you it's a lengthy process, but if you have self-regulatory uh, pledges that are not effective, then ultimately the law has to come in. It's even lengthier than if the law had started to uh, get the process going from an early stage. So potentially it can be lengthy and resource intensive. But um, the main difficulty is that law is jurisdiction specific. So if you want to really uh, address what's effectively a global problem with multinational corporations trading their goods across frontier, then you really need to find some alliances beyond your borders, number one, because when you learn the law, you learn the law of a given jurisdiction. So it's not necessarily transferable, what you've learned, and you know, the test for judicial review, how a court would address a specific challenge and how you would defend it may vary significantly from one jurisdiction to another. You also have more international jurisdictions, such as the dispute settlement body of the World Trade Organization or the case law of the European uh, Court of Justice based in Luxembourg. So all these um, need to be understood and to understand them you need specific training in all these systems and that is a serious limit when you're trying to address the sort of um, power of these very um, uh, major uh, multinational food companies. They have very uh, well established networks of lawyers, public health doesn't have these and I think this course that WHO is, uh, is developing uh, will help create this sort of uh, fostering of exchanges between lawyers that are similarly minded, at least we hope so. But uh, there is a risk of fragmentation that must be uh, understood and addressed. Now, because the problem is so complex, because there's been quite a lot of opposition, it's proven rather difficult to galvanize political will to regulate effectively, robustly, the food industry to better prevent uh, obesity and related diseases. But we may arguably witness a growing momentum. And this is another reason why the law, if you like, is becoming more and more uh, prevalent in public health discourses and obesity prevention discourses. There is indeed an ambivalent status of the alcohol and food industries. So for years, the alcohol and food industries have been allowed, if you like, to take the lead by adopting self-regulatory 
pledges. They've made some commitments, they've uh, made some pledges, they've wanted to be seen as your friend, as a partner in the prevention of obesity. Uh, so there is not this distrust of the uh, food industry as there is the distrust of the tobacco industry. And if you look at the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, Article 5.3 is very clear that the tobacco industry is not a credible partner in tobacco control and therefore the, the lead should be taken by governments and governments uh, alone or governments acting collectively as part of the international community. So we don't have that and partly this is um, the fault um, of the World Health Organization that has made some statement without really envisaging the consequences of these statements. So uh, if you look at the WHO Global Strategy on Diet and Physical Activity of 2004, you can see that the, the aim was to challenge the food industry to do more to improve nutrition and help prevent obesity. However, there's been some ambiguity in the role that the strategy uh, foresaw, if you like, for uh, the food industry. So there is um, specific encouragement of government to establish mechanisms to promote public-private partnerships. There's also uh, some, uh, some words on conflicts of interest, but because you do not define what would a conflict of interest look like in this field, you have this premise that the food industry can play a positive role in the prevention of obesity worldwide. And even though this role is undefined, even though we know there may be conflicts of interest, but they are left undefined as well. So the food industry, because they are pretty quick on the ball, um, thought that's a major opportunity. Let's forge some alliances. And here I've given you the uh, example of the International Food and Beverages Alliance that was formed in 2008 to precisely respond to these, um, uh, this situation where we have a regulatory void, little that has been done to really regulate the food industry to uh, promote a better diet, but at the same time um, uh, there's a call that something needs to be done. So here they are telling you we support the 2004 global strategy and we've made some commitments. We, we're expanding the efforts already underway. There are many commitments, well, there are five commitments relating to consumer information labeling, uh, reformulation, um, <coughs> advertising, public-private partnership, and physical activity, if I'm correct. But here I've given you the example of uh, the commitment they made uh, not to advertise, well, to advertise responsibly to children, and you can see that they're undertaking to only advertise chi to children under 12 uh, if the products are healthy products, or, or to not advertise to children under 12 at all. That means that they take a very low threshold, the age threshold. There is plenty of evidence that adolescents are influenced negatively by unhealthy food marketing, number one. And number two, the way they define what advertising to children is, is very, very narrow indeed, which means that we can um, uh, witness some uh, investment shift. Yes, you may not see some uh, advertising for unhealthy food in children's program, here Scooby-Doo, but you will see an awful lot of advertising for unhealthy food in family viewing programs, 
where children watch these programs in very high numbers, but because they watch these programs together with their family, these programs are not classified as children's programs. So you see an investment shift. You also see some investment shift from regulated to unregulated media when the state finally regulates. And you also have very serious problems of definition. This is my family traveling a few years ago around Belgium. Belgium is part of the EU where you have a similar EU pledge. Coca-Cola is a signatory to the pledge. This is what you find. You're like, how is this possible? If they don't advertise to, to children under 12, I'm assuming this playground was not for tired parents on the motorway. But it's because the definition of advertising does not include display at points of sale. So you have an awful gap here. <laughs> and uh, it's not addressed by these voluntary commitments. So the key questions remain, to which extent can we really expect the food industry to address these, uh, these gaps? Clearly, they have not been very willing to do so. That's true, the scope of the pledge has expanded as and when they were criticized. But it's not because they were so keen to protect your kids. It's because they were fearful of robust legislation. And so, in a way, they've been reactive themselves, which they criticize the law for doing. So we have this awareness that conflicts of interest are problematic. Uh, and this is uh, becoming more and more prominent in public discourse, which explains why now the idea is that unhealthy food marketing and other areas should be regulated rather than left to industry. And you have a very powerful statement here from Alan Grover, who used to be the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Health. His, um, his mandate was to flesh out the right to health, identify uh, problems across the world as to how this right to health had been either interpreted or not, uh, not uh, implemented. Uh, by states, and he says, owing to the inherent problems associated with self-regulation and public-private partnerships, states have a positive duty to regulate unhealthy food advertising and the promotion strategies of food companies. And this is where, if you like, uh, the why. Why is it that the law is becoming more and more prominent? Because there is a recognition that obesity prevention should be seen as a child rights issue, food marketing in particular, and this is the report we, we wrote for UNICEF uh, where we mapped the, um, all the rights that are stated in the Convention on the Rights of a Child that states have an obligation to respect, protect, and fulfill, and to show that unhealthy food marketing was negatively uh, affecting all of these that are listed on this slide. So there is indeed uh, uh, this growing momentum that states not only could do something, but really that they should. And if you start framing the issue as a child rights issue, then you're increasing the accountability of public authorities. If you start thinking about the issue of childhood obesity as a child rights issue, then you're telling the government you have legal obligations because the Convention on the Rights of a Child is legally binding. We're not in the domain of voluntary commitments as the WHO action plan uh, is. Um, and you are, you are also uh, allowing for an increased monitoring of state activities or failure 
to act because then the, for example, Committee on the Rights of the Child that uh, we are state to report on their performance on, uh, and their human rights track record will look at what you're doing to protect child health. And in countries where you have really high levels of obesity, quite a few in the world, uh, increasingly you can see references to obesity in the country reports uh, that the, um, the Committee on the Rights of the Child um, produces and you can see specific references to the imperative of regulating the promotion strategies of big food companies. So, you know, that's not just wishful thinking. There is some potential in this approach. You will also um, increase the political will potentially because it doesn't look too good to infringe children's rights. So if you manage to get children's rights organization on board, then you have more allies to put pressure on governments. It will be the consumer, the public health movement, but also the uh, child rights movement. Of course, as every NGOs these days, they are pretty tight financially. So the question is whether they will want to prioritize these issues, uh, which they have not yet prioritized, bearing in mind they also have a range of concerns to think of. But maybe in the longer term, this is a strategy that I think would have a lot of potential. So what does that mean, a, a rights-based approach? Uh, it means that states have obligations, legally binding obligations, to respect, protect, and fulfill the rights of a child. So it's not only that the state itself shouldn't promote unhealthy food to children, it goes much further. It is an obligation of the state to make sure that third parties, including multinational corporations, do not promote unhealthy food to children, if indeed there is evidence, as there is, on the uh, link between unhealthy food marketing and um, childhood obesity. So I've just given you, I'm giving you the example of the right to health here. Uh, we could do the same with the right to privacy, focusing on the ad uh, tech companies. Uh, we could do the same with the right to food, and in particular, the right to nutritious, adequate food. But just to give you uh, the logic of how we've approached it in this UNICEF report, we start from Article 24 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. This convention, for those of you who don't know, has near universal ratification. Only one country in the world, the United States of America, has not ratified this convention. It means that it's fair to say that the right to health has universal as, uh, similarly for the, um, the, uh, the, the other rights listed in this convention. And state parties recognize in Article 24 the right of a child to the enjoyment of a higher sustainable standard of health. Now, higher sustainable standard of health is not the right to be healthy. The state does not guarantee the right to be healthy, but higher sustainable standard of health is quite a high onus which is placed on the state, and the state must do everything it can within its, uh, to the maximum of its available resources. So, in particular, second paragraph, the state must uh, pursue the full implementation of this right, and in particular, combat disease and malnutrition through the provision of adequate nutritious food and clean drinking water. Now, this convention was adopted in 1989. In 1989, obesity was not considered a major public health problem, at least certainly not at global level, so there is no reference to uh, obesity in this convention. There is no reference either to marketing. And the, the provision, Article 32, on economic exploitation does not refer at all to uh, practices uh, that would uh, extract 
children's data and then use them for direct marketing purposes. So we've argued that we need, and, and this is, I mean, there's a, this is a very well-established uh, principle, that there should be an evolving interpretation of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. The Convention has never been intended to be a static instrument. It must be interpreted in light of the problems of the day, obesity being a very clear one uh, at the moment. So uh, the, co the, the Committee on the Rights of the Child has in interpreted uh, Article 24, saying that it requires state to, under, uh, to address the underlying determinants of health. And what we've argued in the UNICEF report is, right, if you say that Article 24 requires that states regulate unhealthy food marketing as an underlying determinant of health, uh, I mean, unhealthy, as contributing to unhealthy diet, I should have said, then we've argued that the evidence-based recommendations of the WHO uh, should be the yardstick that states should use to determine how to regulate unhealthy food marketing. And the WHO recommendations call for a comprehensive approach whereby children would be protecting from uh, the impact of unhealthy food marketing. So again, we, there's plenty, this is a topic you're interested in, uh, that requires that you address the exposure of children, which media do children uh, watch what kind of how often uh, where etc etc but also the power of marketing what kind of techniques are being used and some of them use themes of fun some of them are very immersive and you don't even see the difference between your game and the advertising the advert game that uh, you're exposed to within the game many of them are very personalized advertising through the use of profiling collection of data. Therefore, the more individualized the advertising, the more likely it is to have an impact. And there's an increasing amount of research on this. The question is, how do you regulate comprehensively so that the loopholes that I identified earlier are indeed closed and the, uh, there are uh, regulatory solutions? But your friends, the partners, the big multinational corporations that have been identified as the friends in the 2004 global strategy, will make it very difficult for states to want to genuinely regulate unhealthy food marketing. And in the UK, we've started to see this because there is an ongoing consultation, which I would invite you to respond to, uh, which is running till the 10th of June. And uh, we've already noted that um, to avoid uh, legislation, bearing in mind the UK government is proposing a ban of unhealthy food marketing between 5.30 in the morning to 9 p.m. So to also capture family viewing programs, not only narrowly defined children's program. They start with, uh, you know, making it very clear that they do not want regulation. So they try and make you feel like you're a fool by wanting to regulate an healthy food market. Notwithstanding 40 years of independent evidence showing unequivocally the link between unhealthy food marketing and children's diets. At the same time, they misinform the public. So they publish very sleek reports like that. Have a look, it's quite edifying. Uh, the perspective of the advertising industry on childhood obesity. And of course, they tell you, oh, advertising is such a very small part of the problem. So they instrumentalize the complexity, saying you won't be able to really quantify how much is gained in terms of public health uh, by regulating marketing, so you may as well do nothing. <laughs> well, the idea is you need to do marketing plus everything else, but uh, misinformation. 
And of course, they try and make people who are uh, involved in the promotion of these regulatory changes look like they're uh, nannies and they're here to make your life difficult and to prevent choice, etc., etc. If there is legislation nonetheless, if the UK government goes ahead with its plan to impose a 9 p.m. water shed on television for unhealthy food marketing, the next step is they will attack you. So your friends, we're in a quite schizophrenic situation when they're your friends until the moment you say, actually, you haven't done what you were supposed to do. We've given you a lot of time to self-regulate. You haven't done it. It's been ineffective. Plenty of research shows it. So we are going to, um, to attack. And they have an awful lot of arguments for attack. Um, they can use European Union and international trade challenges by arguing that by restricting marketing practices, you are uh, restricting the freedom to trade as one pleases, and advertising is seen as a tool of market integration because by promoting your products, you get them known in countries where they may not have been traded before. You have uh, questions also uh, of uh, compatibility with the right to free speech and uh, property. And that's quite extraordinary because it's not states that have started to use uh, human rights arguments first, it's the food industry. Well, industry actors more generally, because they've argued, and they've started to argue that in the 70s in the US, they've argued, oh, advertising is a form of speech. So if you don't allow me to advertise my product, you're infringing my rights under the First Amendment to the US Constitution. The Supreme Court was not swayed in the 50s, but in 1976, delivered a major influential ruling saying, oh yeah, that's true. So therefore, the state has a particularly high onus when it wants to justify marketing restrictions. And the other one, uh, very closely related, is the right to property. Or if you want me not to promote my brand, you're impacting on my property, my trademarks, for example, if you want me to remove Tony the Tiger from Kellogg's Frosty's boxes. Because I've invested a lot of money in developing these characters for promotional purposes and therefore you're infringing on my right to property. Now, this is therefore, and I, I will be less long than I was in my first section, but the next question is how do you counter these challenges? Because if you don't prepare for them well, your legislation may be judicially reviewed, there may be a legal challenge, a court may hear the arguments, and will decide. So we find ourselves in this situation where on the one hand, we should adopt this human rights approach whereby states must regulate to promote the right to health, the right to food, the right to privacy and so many other rights. On the other hand, we have industry operators that have claims under, or so they say, under international and European Union trade law, under constitutional law, national or European Court of Human Rights or Court of Justice, EU Charter, etc., etc. We need to do a balancing exercise. This is what lawyers do. We spend our lives balancing competing concerns and trying to frame the evidence that would support one view or the other uh, in light of the objective that we want to achieve. And I will say a bit more uh, on, uh, on this 
uh, notion of balancing and how courts go about it, bearing in mind, however, that what I'm saying is rather uh, trying to extract some key lessons that we've learned throughout the world without purporting to give you the answer in one specific jurisdiction. Because again, the law being different from one jurisdiction to another, the test, the balancing test applied by courts around the world will vary as well. But one thing I would like to say is it is absolutely crucial to build consensus within government. Because for example, the consultation on food marketing uh, that's ongoing in the UK is led both by the Department of Health and Social Care and by the Department for Digital Media, Culture and Sport, DCMS and DHSC. And they need to agree. That's fine, they've done it, they produced a lot of uh, document. The impact assessment is, is a very significant document. But in France, for example, when the French uh, Public Health Ministry announced that it would regulate in 2008 uh, food marketing, the Department of Culture and Audiovisual Services made a public statement saying that's not going to happen. So you had competing statements from two different government uh, departments. That's not helpful at all. The, ultimately, the decision had to be, again, there was a, an arbitration by uh, President Sarkozy, who happened um, to be uh, closely related to some private telecoms operator, Bouygues, and ultimately, so goes the story. Uh, the uh, food marketing has not been regulated in France, and 11 years down the line, we are still waiting for measures that are uh, meaningful. So uh, building consensus within government is absolutely crucial, and within, uh, building consensus beyond government is very important too. So what I was saying earlier about what kind of allies can you find who, so children's rights organization, what role can we think for civil society, who in civil society, but also you need to work with lawyers because these challenges, the more robust, I mean, if your legislation is not effective or is unlikely to be, the challenges will not be forthcoming. There will be no challenge in the UK, uh, at least legal challenge, to uh, the adoption of uh, food marketing restrictions in and around children's program when they were adopted uh, in 2006. But the industry has already said that they would challenge an IPM watershed. So you need to anticipate these challenges from the very beginning so that your documentation, impact assessment, your, uh, the legislation itself, etc., etc., is framed bearing in mind this balancing so that it can withstand a possible challenge. A challenge in itself is not a problem. It may be a sign that you're actually doing the right thing. But uh, it is a problem if ultimately uh, you lose uh, your case. So um, we need to balance, as I've just said, commercial rights, uh, trade, interest, and public health, uh, privacy, and other uh, concerns. The situation in Europe, including the UK, uh, is uh, that regulatory authorities are given a very broad margin of discretion how, as to how they are going to balance these competing interests. For example, in the UK, the plain packaging, tobacco plain packaging scheme went through litigation, was challenged, and it was upheld as being compatible with constitutional rights, uh, with, with uh, trade, etc., etc. Ultimately, it is now on the statute book, and uh, you can see the packages have changed accordingly. So, 
you know, removing everything from the packaging, adding these horrible pictures, even mandating the color, could pass all these tests. So how is this done? This is the key of my how section. You do not crack a nut with a sledgehammer, you crack a nut with a nutcracker. This is the idea of proportionality. So to reconcile public interest with commercial rights and so on and so forth, you need to think, how can you achieve your public health objective by restricting the right only to the extent that it is necessary to achieve this objective? So that means, first of all, you need to define your objective. And you need to ensure that the two limbs of a proportionality assessment are satisfied. What are they? And I'll give you the example of food marketing to illustrate how it would work. There must be a legitimate uh, intervention. So legitimacy means that your um, proposal to restrict food marketing must be based on evidence. There must be indeed a good case that you could put forward as to why you would want to restrict unhealthy food marketing. So we have, as I said, 40 years of research showing that there is indeed some relationship between unhealthy food marketing and children's purchase requests, food preferences, <coughs> and, um, and therefore diets. So by putting forward before the court this evidence, you're demonstrating by, by restricting unhealthy food marketing, you're indeed hoping to improve their preferences, their diets, and therefore contribute to an obesity prevention strategy. The second is uh, slightly more difficult because this is where the actual balancing exercise takes place. If you want to um, contribute to an effective obesity prevention strategy through uh, food marketing restrictions, you, for example, would need to limit your uh, rule to unhealthy food marketing. Because if you were to say, we're banning food marketing, if you're banning food marketing, indeed you're going to ban unhealthy food marketing, you're casting your net too widely to achieve the objective that you've set yourself. Does that make sense? So you need to tailor what you're doing in light of this objective. The answer may be different if what you're trying to do is to prevent the commercialization of childhood. As Quebec, Norway, Sweden have done, you could introduce some marketing restrictions across the board, irrespective of the products, the services, the brands, etc. But then your rationale would be different. Um, so you need to really reflect on how can you achieve your objective without going overboard and therefore adopting this sledgehammer approach where you would limit the freedom of industry beyond what is required to achieve this objective that you pursue. And uh, I don't have time to go through the Scotch whiskey case, but this case uh, shows basically that the burden of proof for establishing whether or not a restriction is proportionate lies on states. So it is because, you know, if it's established there is a trade restriction, then the burden, that's done, that there is a trade restriction that's done by the claimant, in this case, uh, uh, the Scotch Whiskey Association, then the burden shifts and the member state must justify the restriction. However, as I said, 
The burden of proof in the EU is not particularly onerous because the, regu uh, the regulator is granted a broad margin of discretion in making these complex economic, political, social, cultural assessments. And the courts are not willing to substitute their assessment to the legislator. Nevertheless, you need to do your homework. And litigation, therefore, can be costly because you need to show we have a public health problem, we're adopting these measures because of this evidence, and we are mindful of competing interests, and we've really tailored our measure in light of this complex environment in which this regulation uh, takes place. So um, what the court said is, uh, here it's the court of justice, the burden of proof that uh, member states uh, bear, in this case Copland, cannot extend to creating the requirement that they must prove positively that no other conceivable measure could enable the legitimate objective pursued to be attained under the same conditions. That means that Scotland did not need to show that a minimum unit price was much more effective than taxation. What it needed to show was that an experimental measure was warranted, Scotland was the first to adopt this measure, and that it was more likely, not 100%, because we don't have that many data, but more likely to achieve the objective of protecting harmful drinkers, those who drink very cheap alcohol in large quantities in a short time uh, than a taxation system. And this satisfied the court. But what does that mean? What does that mean? First, proportionality matters. Sometimes it has different names. It may be called necessity under WTO law, but proportionality matters. You need to engage as public health factors with it. And the earlier you do it, the more you can prepare for litigation, which is likely to arise if indeed your measure is robust and may impact on the profit base of industry actors. Very often, industry will challenge, even though they know they may well lose. But this is to make you lose time, waste time. Because Scotch whiskey challenged the Scottish uh, legislation in 2012 it was only upheld as valid in to, uh, November 2017. So it's five years and a half of litigation where the minimum unit price legislation did not enter into effect. Uh, Uruguay, it's also very expensive. Uruguay was challenged in front of a private um, um, investment, uh, in front of an investment tribunal uh, because of the enlarged warnings on tobacco products it adopted. It was given Bloomberg money to fight the, the case. Uh, if I remember correctly, the fees were around $8 million. So you can see that these are substantial sums uh, just for this case to defend the legislation. And ultimately, the case ran from 2010 <coughs> to 2016. So uh, you can see that there are a lot of legal strategies that the industry is developing, and we need to think about how we can do that. So I'm concluding. This is uh, also to show you that right to property has not prevented Chile, ultimately, uh, from removing uh, the, uh, the tiger, uh, the equity brand character from uh, the box. So again, you may have quite a lot of weapons in your arsenal, if you like, but you need to think about how to use it best. So the law can intervene. 
The more you think it through, the better your law is likely to be. But evidence ultimately will never re replace political will. So if the government does not want to do much, this human rights-based approach um, will be difficult to implement because there aren't that many sanctions that um, uh, the, the international community could use. The uh, last thing I would say is that the best interest of the child is enshrined in Article 3.1 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child. It is intended precisely to recognize that there are competing concerns, but when balancing and uh, children's interest is at stake, you need to ensure that in all actions concerning children, the best interest of the child shall be a primary consideration. Here again, it's not the only consideration, so the balancing is still in order, <coughs> but the primary consideration means that indeed the uh, children's interest should be taken very seriously into account and arguably uh, take precedence over purely economic interest of private operators. So um, I will um, stop here. Uh, we need to shift the paradigm that uh, you know, human rights are not only to be used to defend claims uh, based on rights of commercial operators as a shield to protect oneself, but also as a sword from the very beginning of thinking about regulating, use the human rights uh, arguments, and uh, there is plenty of scope to do so. So this is a summary of what I've said. Uh, I'm very happy for the slides uh, to be uh, circulated, part of the slide uh, with a copy of my daughter. Uh, once again, I'm really uh, grateful for this invitation. I've spoken a bit too long, but uh, I'm very happy to take questions. And this last slide is if you want to see uh, the work we're doing um, uh, in Liverpool, the Law and NCD unit uh, thinks about how we regulate food, alcohol, and tobacco industries. So thank you very much. Thank you.